Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. So I want to drill into this a little bit more, this game theory all the way down topic. Um, Have you heard of universal Darwinism? It sounds like a kind of Dan Dennett concept. I think it may be related to him. I don't know a lot about it. Um, I read Hoffman's book, The Case Against Reality. Okay. And he, he, he talked a bit about it. But so if, if it is game theory all the way down, then basically everything is a strategy, right? Life is a strategy. An organization is a strategy. Um, it's just it's just a whole collection of these iterated games. So then everything is a player or a strategy, I guess you might say. And I've, I'm reading a book recently too on quantum physics, and it's making the point that even at the subatomic level, reality responds to us, how we measure it, like what the intention of the experimenter is, reality changes. So I was just curious, like, is this, does this weigh in on your metaphysical views, this idea of game theory all the way up and all the way down? It, it's a rabbit hole that once, once you go down a sort of game theoretic strategic perspective on reality, you never really entirely leave it. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like kind of a depressing Machiavellian way to live. But that's only true if you focus on really um, simple, depressing kind of zero-sum games. Right. It's like strictly competitive and there's a definite winner and a loser. But once you get a little more sophistication about this stuff, um, then you realize almost nothing in life is strictly zero-sum. Right. There's like almost every way that real people actually interact or firms interact or, you know, married people interact, there's always potential for um, not necessarily positive some interactions and mutual gains, but if nothing else, like at least minimizing mutual damage. Yes. You know? Yeah. And so we're constantly living in a state of, of what the game theorists call mixed motive games where there's like, 
some mm. incentives for cooperation, there's some incentives for selfishness and competition, there's some degree of kind of tension between short and long-term interests, there's some social context that's kind of watching everything that's going on and kind of evaluating all the players. Because mm -hmm. the players are rarely on a deserted island. Yeah. Um, and so to me, the further and deeper I got into kind of game theory thinking, in a way, kind of the more optimistic I got about human uh, relationships and social life, because you just see many more potentials for um, mutually beneficial interactions. Right. You understand the markets a lot better. And also, yes. I think you understand like crypto a lot better. Yes. Yeah. Agree. Well, you, you've, you're front running me here. You know why I'm taking it. Um, so capitalism, you know, clearly that is the implementation of a positive sum game, you know, writ large, basically for humans. So we effectively say if we can each go out and do our own thing and have rights to the property we create, you know, we take our own personal property, we infuse it with nature, we create something of value and trade it with other self-owned people that we create this incredible positive sum game called capitalism, or we create a bunch of wealth. We all become richer. Life becomes easier. We have more freedom effectively. And so it's not, you know, I agree with you that you hear game theory, people tend to think zero sum immediately. It's always like, if I got something, you lost something. And maybe that's conditioning from the game of monopoly or something. I'm not sure. But um, to your point, it's quite quite often positive sum rather than zero sum. And I've also found that when you come to perceive the game theoretic aspects of money, that to me is the core of seeing, of seeing Bitcoin as, I don't want to use the word inevitable, but as very likely because the game theory, again, if it's game theory all the way down, you know, it's all the way up as well. Governments are playing games between one another. There's geopolitical games being played, political games, organizational games, corporate games. That they're so long as they are organizations or organisms that want to trade to produce wealth and then conserve that wealth in something that can't be diluted. Bitcoin, although it's adopted by choice, in some ways is forced upon all market actors over time. Is that is game theory very fundamental to your perception of, of this as well? Yeah, totally. Because if, if you think about the set of problems that Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he, she, they, it, you know, was the set of problems that they solved were fundamentally game theoretic problems of how do you coordinate, mm. um, action and value and trust in a kind of trustless world using this magic of cryptography. Mm. And in a way, <clears throat> Bitcoin almost like solved too many problems all at once for people to really appreciate the, the genius of it. Right. Because if it had been like, here's a way to solve the double spend problem alone. And then people had been like, had taken like 10 years to appreciate yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. That's cool. And then if like Bitcoin part two is introduced, like here's how we can do proof of work and mining in a way that makes it like hard to fake the value of this, then 
people would have been like, oh, that's really cool. Like, then they take another 10 years to appreciate that. But in a way, the, the, the fact that so many kind of game theoretic problems about value were solved all at once in 2009 means that for the people who get it, like they become very, very enthusiastic about it. And the yes. people who don't get it, like haven't quite had the time or, you know, the kind of intellectual elbow room to kind of catch up. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I think the same is true for lots of other innovations in the crypto space. And there have been innovations. And, you know, Bitcoin like solves a certain set of problems and other projects might solve other problems. But it's happening so quickly that the problem of cultural lag is, is really severe. It's like it takes a couple generations traditionally for people to kind of wrap their heads around a major new way to solve a trust issue or an economic issue. Right. You know, like the concept of like depositing your money in a bank instead of just keeping it in your house. Yeah. It took a while for people to get comfortable with that. Right, right, right. Or the concept of like, I'm going to give money to this entity, this corporation that has limited liability and trust that they will give me dividends in the future. And like, normally there's a certain speed of progress that people are kind of used to and it's multi-generational and like, you don't really trust it unless you grow up with it. Yeah. Right, right, right. It was so new that we've had like, barely half a generation to kind of wrap our heads around it. And so we don't even fully appreciate how many game theoretic problems have been solved or might be solved by these kinds of technologies. Such a great point because so many early adopters in Bitcoin, people that get it, I mean, they grew up playing video games. I grew up on digital technology. So we became very, myself included, became very accustomed to having these real interactions online. Uh, but then in the video game world, like the games I played, they actually had money in the games too. And so the money functioned, the game, you could trade with other real life people in real time. And there was a later point where the items in that game started being sold on eBay for what, you know, quote unquote, real money as in us dollars. So that left, you know, a very fundamental mark on me. It's like, okay, the digital space is kind of the future of commerce because it just offers so many advantages, but people that, so growing up with that, it's a natural, it's a natural extension for me to be like, Oh yeah, Bitcoin makes sense. But if you didn't grow up with that, <laughs> you didn't grow up with digital uh, existence, then it's much harder maybe to accept um, and to your point too, I, lo- I like the point about Bitcoin solving so many problems. The b- the big breakthrough, you know, uh, the Byzantine general's problem, that's a game theoretic problem. So how do you pass a message across an antagonistic group of actors and have the message maintain its fidelity, like without getting distorted? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's really, it's so, I feel like that is the most fundamental uh, I, I don't know if you call it an epistemology to understand Bitcoin. Like it is just where you, where it really grounds out when you come to see the the game theory propelling it in the world is when I came to see it as unstoppable. 
It's like no one, you can't quit the game. You can't step outside the game. You can't pause the game. So it's like, you have to play the game. If you have to play the game, then, and you want to trade and you want to conserve wealth, you want to be a successful economic agent, then you have to hold the hardest money. Yeah, and I, I also, of course, the hacker ethos, which is like, you only really are confident that your system is secure if you take the point of view of the hacker trying to break into it and trying mm. to be adversarial. And the system is only as secure as like the number and quality of iterations between you and potential adversaries. Mm. And you cannot possibly in advance from first principles predict all the possible attack vectors. Right. You actually have to at least simulate them or at least recruit people to be like play adversaries mm -hmm. rather than real adversaries. You say this, you see the same thing with deep learning, machine learning, alpha zero, you know, these systems now can train themselves up to beat the world champions at chess or go just by playing themselves adversarially repeatedly mm. millions and millions of times. And so I think there's a new concept of how do you create um, genuine trust and security that you, like you have to go through the crucible of kind of adversarial mm -hmm. game theoretic testing. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that's also something that crypto people and Bitcoiners kind of get intuitively at this point. Like mm -hmm. they're always questioning, how could you break this money? How yes. could you break this crypto? How could you attack it? Could you do a 51% attack? Could, could you like dominate the, you know, the stakeholder pool? Like what could you do? And that is rarely done with traditional fiat currency. Mm -hmm. in any kind of systematic way apart from like you know the secret service will hire like material scientists to go how hard is this dollar bill to counterfeit mm -hmm. but they won't ask like what's to keep the government itself from kind of counterfeiting it yeah <laughs> right after money printing um or what's to keep some actual geopolitical adversary from doing a sort of financial warfare attack right on our system and so I think um, once you go from kind of a naive non-game theoretic view into like a slightly cynical game theory view, mm -hmm. you're sacrificing the illusion of security for actual potential security. Right. Yeah. It's um, tell me, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this too. So, Bitcoin solves the Byzantine general's problem, right? We propagate a message through all of us antagonistic actors and it's done with true fidelity, right? Whatever is cemented in the block, the blockchain six blocks back, that's, we all agree to that. Consensus is established. It's inarguable effectively. Uh, it was brought to my attention once that the solving of the Byzantine general's problem can really only be done once in a way like you would always rely on that system for the system that could propagate the most truthful message because it's never certain right it's all probabilistic the probabilities just go way into the you know astronomical territory and it was brought to my attention that the only way to successfully stop bitcoin at a geopolitical level would actually be full 
collective concerted action by every nation state simultaneously, right? They would have to all outlaw it in the same way. They would have to disparage it. They'd probably have to render physical physical attacks on both the mining network and on Bitcoiners themselves. Like it would take a complete concerted, uh, you know, unidirectional effort, if you will, on the part of all government, all governments acting worldwide. Because if there were any non-participants, then that business could very easily move to those jurisdictions effectively because capital is hypermobile, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, the weird conundrum here is like for geopolitical actors to stop Bitcoin, they themselves need to solve the Byzantine generals problem, right? They need to have this trusted message so they can all follow one unitary plan to stop Bitcoin. But the very solution to that problem is the thing they're trying to stop which is Bitcoin. So that was presented to me once as like the impossibility of, of stopping Bitcoin because it had already solved the one thing that could possibly stop it. I think at a kind of narrow technical level, that might be correct. However, the problem is human psychology and virtue signaling again, mm. which is like, if you are a deeply manipulative like Machiavellian nation state or firm or whatever. And let's say hypothetically, you want to destroy some new technical innovation, whether it's Bitcoin or email or driverless cars or anything, right? The way you do it, pragmatically speaking, is propaganda that hits people's moral hot buttons mm -hmm. and that makes it seem socially unacceptable at an ethical level mm. to be associated with the new technology. Okay. So some hostile nation state, you know, they could spend potentially like tens of billions of dollars trying to like dominate Bitcoin manufacturing or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the cheaper way to attack any given crypto project would be guilt by association you know, with the founders, the investors, the advocates, et cetera, you just do a mm -hmm. propaganda war. And it's not that hard to convince people that um, like there's, there's moral taboo X that everybody agrees is bad, like, mm -hmm. you know, child pornography or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you just draw some dotted lines between the bad thing everyone agrees is bad mm -hmm. and the thing you want to attack as a kind of psyop right where you want mm. to create the impression that it's deeply uncool and unethical to be associated with that thing in any way and we've seen many many nation states throughout history do those kind of like virtue signaling psyops to attack disparage discredit um people groups technologies etc and those kind, that attack vector, the, the virtue signaling attack vector, is often incredibly cheap and effective. Interesting. And honestly, that's a thing that often keeps me up at night. Huh. It's, it's not that like, oh, U.S. senators will like figure out, oh, if we give an extra few billion dollars of R&D money to NSA, that NSA will be able to like crack Bitcoin cryptography. Mm -hmm with some new quantum computer, that's not the issue. The danger is like US senators figure out 
well, hell, I can get reelected by if I just, you know, disparage Bitcoin as being something used by those ne'er-do-wells. Right. And then it's really hard to fight those ethical attack vectors. And, you know, the nation states that ban certain kinds of crypto are, are basically doing that, right? They're saying, like, you're not a good citizen. Right. From our point of view, we're going to create a social norm that says, if you invest in crypto, you're a bad, bad person. Yeah. And you're betraying the motherland or whatever. And that is not a problem that can be solved through a pure game theory at the technical level. It's something right. where, like, you've got to build your kind of your kind of propaganda defenses, your 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 lobbying power, right? Your PR, your friendly journalists, like you've got to have that cultural immune system protecting you. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does a lot. So (laughs) this is very interesting because I think the propaganda on Bitcoin, it's already started to some extent, but I think it's going to get worse with the environmental impact, the energy usage. That's an area that is so ill understood and such a glaring thing about Bitcoin that's something they could hone in on very simply. Then the the defense against these ethical attack vectors is counter propaganda, effectively, uh, or you could maybe say education. If you're, I guess, if you're telling the truth, it's more like education, less like propaganda. Uh, what? How would we? Because I guess two part question. How could a PSYOP to stop Bitcoin succeed? And then what ethical defenses would be most effective at stopping it? Well, one obvious ethical attack vector is from the kind of woke far left. And you have to anticipate that there will sooner or later be attacks on crypto Mm -hmm. on the basis that it is, you know, uh, racist or white nationalist, that it's sexist, that it's male dominated, that it's Western European, that it's colonialist and exploitative, that it is, you know, heteronormative in some way, like mm. any of those um, accusations that kind of woke politics is used to kind of hurtling in all directions at anybody they don't like, mm-hmm. easy, easy to weaponize those against crypto. Because as a matter of fact, you know, crypto industry is overwhelmingly like white, Asian, largely male, Mm -hmm. middle-class, Euro-American, at least it's perceived to be that way. And um, I think crypto needs to start developing defenses against that. In, in a much more serious way. It's, it's not enough to say, trust us, this is liberating, and trust us, this is good for poor people and rich people, and mm-hmm. this will be good for everybody around the world. Like, um, you know, whatever you think, for example, whatever you think about Cardano, I think one genius of the project is, focus, is focusing on that Africa strategy that says, here are concrete ways this will be good for ordinary poor people in Africa. Mm. And will help them bring, you know, create economic identity for them. Um, or you need to start practicing your talking points and your counter narrative that says, 
here's why crypto would be good for empowering disenfranchised women around the world. Mm -hmm. like, whatever the the apostate women of Afghanistan who might want to actually escape that country perhaps now with mm -hmm. maybe some of their family wealth intact. How are they going to do that mm -hmm. if their export controls on money? Maybe crypto could help empower them. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to develop an armory of these kinds of um, counter narratives, and I think we have to do it proactively. Hmm. So, what do you think the psyop, if it were to be successful, what would it look like? Because, in in my opinion, and I don't know, may or may not agree with this, if Bitcoin fails, the whole thing fails. That's like it. There's one asset so far that's provably resistant to all attack vectors that we've seen thrown at it if you know the king fails so to speak then i think it's going to render most of the movement if not all of it to similar attack vectors and it just won't work what in your mind you said it keeps you up at night thinking about it like what flavor of psyop do you think could actually destroy bitcoin I hate giving ideas to like the feds for what, what sort of an actionable <laughs> attack strategy they could use, but it would involve things like, um, look, like, all state intelligence agencies that are sophisticated knew how to do um, discreditation attacks on people mm -hmm. and like how to do, um, how to dig up dirt and how to do, um, the kinds of research on you know opposing politicians that can help you attack them during elections. Mm. Um, if a large intelligence agency devoted a lot, a lot, a lot of resources to doing that for like every major crypto founder, entrepreneur, major investor, major journalist, um, podcaster, whatever, mm -hmm. and did a kind of rolling you know, discrediting PSYOP for all the people. And I was like, this person's not paying their child support. This person's a sexual degenerate in some mm. way. This person's doing tax fraud. This, you know, person's into this taboo thing, whatever, whatever it is, you know, you can, all of us are imperfect in some way. All of us step outside the Overton window in, in certain regards mm -hmm. and, all of us are vulnerable to that, particularly in an age of mass surveillance. So it's just a question of kind of how long it takes for that to start happening. Mm. And we know that um, nation states play very, very dirty if they feel like they have to when it comes to this stuff. So I think every major figure in crypto should be kind of braced for you know, the kinds of oppositional attacks that you typically only experience if you're like a major national politician. Because if we really think that the stakes are very, very high in this industry, then opposing stakeholders who, you know, have an interest in the legacy finance systems are sooner or later going to realize that. And mm -hmm coordinate to to stop it mm -hmm. 
So you would see it. I mean, the only viable attack vector is this social layer slash psyop attack. I mean, there may be other ones, but it seems like that would be the most um, viable, just given Bitcoin's proven robustness to protocol level attacks so far. Um, I agree with that. And I, I, this is concerning because it's a very subjective domain as Zabo might call, you know, wet code. There's not, not a, a clear technological or objective way to deal with this. Um, just out of my own curiosity, I've kind of settled on attacking central banking with inquiry, actually, like just sort of, it's a, it's an industry if you want to call it an industry, a legal monopoly that thrives in the darkness, right? The fact that no one understands central banking is what allows them to rob everyone blind in broad daylight constantly. You know, how many people understand still that printing money is theft? Like I'd say sub 1% of the population, if I'm having to guess yet it's done so brazenly you know it's just it's on it's really truly unbelievable when you see it for what it is do you think that is a viable countermeasure to this type of psyop is like this further discrediting the existing apparatus as they try to discredit bitcoin or crypto no i don't think it is because it doesn't really hit the um the emotional hot buttons that ordinary citizens Mm. have available as you point out, like probably less than 1% of people really understand fiat money printing well enough to understand that inflation is theft of all your dollar denominated assets. Um, and that's pretty abstract. Even the people who get it are kind of like, yeah, gosh darn it, the government's stealing 4% of my bank account per year. Mm. Whereas, um, you know, the, the way you fight these um, sort of psyop narratives is with standard effective PR counter narratives. Mm. Like you get attractive, influential people as spokespeople standing up for your technology. People who are already known and respected yeah. and loved and, you know, romantically attractive and people who everyone else wants to be like. Um, you have spokespeople, you have organized PR and lobbying efforts. And also, crucially, I think you don't prematurely make enemies of institutions mm. that are too dumb to realize that they're actually your enemy. Mm-hmm. I think at this point, central banking knows central banking knows crypto is an existential threat. Mm-hmm. But there's all this other legacy finance system, you know, Wall Street and mainstream banking and insurance and real estate, and all those people kind of don't understand crypto well enough to yet know, is crypto going to help us or hurt us? And Mm. like, are they're kind of standing on the sidelines waiting to see how the, you know, the lines get drawn and Mm. they don't even know there's a war brewing. Mm. If crypto preemptively says, okay, all you guys doing tax preparation, all you people working in the insurance industry, all of you real estate brokers, you're going to be out of a job as soon as we put all real estate transactions and 
and um, you know contracts on the blockchain. Please don't do that. Don't give them advance warning <laughs> that they should organize their already organize their already existing powerful, well-funded lobbying groups to fight crypto. Mm. I think we should just shut up about that for like ten years and create some um, uncertainty, you know, about which of those industries are really going to end up being our, our friends or foes. Mm, interesting. As, as long as they're not sure, they're going to like hedge their bets, you know? Yeah. We, we want those real estate agents to be buying Bitcoin and, and ETH and, and ADA and whatever. And once enough of them do, they're not going to fight crypto. So there's a, uh, the being quiet in the Trojan horse strategy in advance of this. I like that. Do you think one more thing on this topic? So inflation, central banking, a bit too abstract for general sharing. Do you think war though? I think I found this to be, I think the emotional gateway to, to sharing this narrative of Bitcoin is that it actually defunds the war machine. This seems like kind of a human universal. No one, I think if everyone could vote, hey guys, if we could just have more wars or no more wars, which which one would you choose? I know that's very binary, but I think people in general don't like war. So if you start to look at Bitcoin as that, as a money that actually disincentivizes violence, um, that seems to be like a very compelling narrative. Do you think that's something that's sufficient, uh, sufficiently emotionally gripping to propel the narrative? With, with certain people, sure. With, with more kind of pacifist men, with a lot of women, with people who are kind of instinctively anti-violence, anti-war, that makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense. And at a rational level, almost everybody knows like, most large-scale mechanized warfare between nation-states is kind of a bad idea, and it's like a negative-sum game. Mm -hmm. But I think there's still enough kind of ornery um, people, especially males, especially young males, who are kind of like, yeah, but war is kind of awesome, and conflict is cool, and I love the movie 300. And, mm. and an anti-war I, I do message. love that movie. <laughs> and yeah, me too. <laughs> and like an anti-war message is an arrow we should have in our quiver so that we can, if somebody's ever like, oh, crypto's terrible, it's promoting violence, we need to have those talking points ready that like, here's the connection between being able to print fiat currency and being able to fund a war machine. Yes. And here's that, how that happens throughout the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um. But what you don't, the tricky thing is like, you don't necessarily want to be telling Americans, okay, if we all adopt Bitcoin, we won't be a strong, capable military power, right? It's very tricky mm. to say this will weaken right. our, our nation's sort of hard power strength. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder, I mean, I guess you'd have to look at the numbers, but say the U.S. came out today and just said, we're going to start transitioning to Bitcoin. Uh, they'd probably do it quietly at first. But, so we'd be running the dollar 
printing machine would be expanding the money supply, acquiring Bitcoin. If that then did invoke this hyper-Bitcoinization event, we would be one of the first adopters, assumably. So we'd still be a world superpower after all was said and done. Um, and maybe that's the right way to position it. It's kind of a matter of national security to hold some territory on this network should it should it succeed. And you don't want to sit down at the table last. Like the sooner you can sit down at the table, the more advantageous it is to you in, in a geopolitical way. I think in a way what might be more compelling to people is kind of talking about a cyber warfare security mm. issue, which is that on the one hand, if you have a legacy finance system that is extremely centralized and a fairly mm. small number of data centers, very fragile. And everybody knows where they are and mm -hmm. it's very fragile. And, you know, a, like even a very limited cyber attack on, you know, stock trading institutions or the Fed or this or that data center could wipe out your bank account, cripple mm. the economy, lead you to be unemployed, mean international trade grinds to a halt. Um, people have seen enough kind of cyber terrorism movies for the last 25 years that I think that's, you know, a feasible worry. And if you could make the case that security centralized crypto can help protect everybody and kind right. of harden, harden the whole country against those kind of uh, cyber attack vectors. Um, I think that could be a fairly compelling pitch. Mm. Um, particularly if you point out how certain rivals on the geopolitical stage, you know, what are they investing their money in in terms of their potential attack vectors on different mm. countries? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually, to really highlight one of the strengths of Bitcoin. Um, interesting. So maybe we'll pivot back to virtue signaling here. I did really enjoy that tangent, though. Um, I'll read another excerpt here. So some, you say some of a potential mate's moral virtues could function as signals that maximize one's payoffs and minimize one's risk in relationship games. For example, moral capacities for conscientiousness and patience may signal a partner's likelihood of playing mutually beneficial strategies given the iterated, meaning repeated interaction, nature of long-term relationships. Moral capacities for empathy and sympathy may signal that a partner attaches positive utility to one's own happiness in addition to their own, which makes it much more likely that a pre-optimal, which is to say mutually beneficial equilibrium will be maintained in the relationship. So these signals are, they're purely for romantic fitness or I think you said in the beginning that they're not purely for romantic, but I'm having actually a hard time seeing how they're not because <laughs> it seems like if the sole aim of life is like reproduction, then you'd almost cater all of your messages towards that aim to some extent. Um, are you, was that you trying to kind of just be humble in your, your thesis here? Or, I mean, this seems pretty, pretty strong point that it would be uh, the majority of it at least. 
you know, I've certainly spent, you know, 35 years of my research career thinking about sexual relationships as absolutely central to human life and reproduction and evolution. Mm. Um, but on it, you know, on occasion, people have been like, Miller, you're too, you're too sex obsessed. What about friendship and family and the greater social good and blah, blah, blah. So I try to be balanced in that approach. Mm. Um, I do think that the role of moral virtues within intimate long-term relationships has been relatively neglected mm -hmm. in moral philosophy. So I'm kind of making a pitch for like, we should at least pay a little more attention to it mm -hmm. and not just think about the kind of public morality between strangers that tends to be emphasized by a lot of moral philosophers. Um, and also you'll note the language I used in, in a lot of that paper was basically like trying to explain to kind of Aspie academics mm -hmm. in technical terms, things that are kind of intuitively obvious to a lot of normies. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's like to a lot of people, it's obvious, oh, you want to choose a nice mate because they're going to be nice to you over the long term. And that will be good for both of you. Mm -hmm. Well, if you wrap that up in kind of game theoretic language, um, it, I'm just sort of selling it to a certain market segment of, of my yes. academic readers with that. But I, I also really enjoy personally kind of digging a little bit beneath the surface and going, okay, we have these intuitions that, oh yeah, we fall in love with nice people. Yeah. Hopefully. Well, why? You know, why? Right. And and in particular, um, given that there's sometimes trade-offs, like people are often uh, attracted to kind of, uh, women are attracted to bad boys and men are sometimes attracted to kind of crazy women. Okay, how does that work? And what are the possible pros and cons of people with different personality traits or different moral virtues and vices? Yes. You know? um, and also, you know, this is intended partly for college students to read and college students tend to be a little bit short term and they're thinking about relationships. You know, they're not typically tuned into how will this person's traits perhaps play out over a multi-decade marriage that involves kids and grandkids. Yeah. You know, they're not really tuned into that, that time span of decision-making. Right. Right. Yeah. You, I think earlier you were talking about the meat provisioning that, um, the great hunter that goes, brings back a bunch of meat and shares it amongst his tribe. Uh, he may not even be conceiving of that as something to improve his fitness, right? It's, um, I guess the, the motivation doesn't necessarily have to map directly onto the evolutionary motivation, if you will. Um, I wanted to get, I thought this was interesting too, how you, you distinguish between moral persons and moral acts and that the individual, you know, operating in this domain is actually looking at the individual, uh, I, well, I can't remember if it was the act or the actor that they were um, zeroing in on more. I guess it was the individual act, right? Versus all of these morals being contained in a single person. So I'll read one more excerpt here to launch on that because it, that too seemed to be like a much higher resolution way to look at the world versus trying to put all of these attributes in the container of one person. And it, it, 
which would, it's kind of like a label, right? You would just say that, oh, that's a good person or a bad person. And then that really discredits the reality that we're all a little bit of both and we change over time and everything's complicated. So the excerpt, uh, you say costly signaling theory portrays human moral actions in a new light as reliable cues of personal moral traits. This may seem a peculiar idea to most moral philosophers who have traditionally focused on judging the morality of isolated acts rather than the moral virtues of whole people. Recently, as act ethics has been supplanted by virtue ethics, attention has returned to the moral person level of description, just the right level of description to consider in costly signaling models of moral evolution. It is the level that unifies the quantitative traits in evolutionary genetics, mate choice in evolutionary biology, person perception in social psychology, personality traits in behavior genetics, parole decisions in criminal justice, and voter choice in democratic elections. So we see this morality propagating through all layers of human existence in a lot of ways. Um, how does, how did you differentiate that? Like wh where did this model come from? The separation between acts and persons and um, maybe you could just give us a little bit of background on it. Yeah. I mean, I know a little bit about moral philosophy and a little bit about its history, but I'm not an expert, but mm -hmm. you know, basically, um, Historically, there's been kind of three main branches of moral philosophy. There's deontology, which says there's kind of absolute rules that you should never violate, mm -hmm. no matter what the benefits of violating them would be, like Immanuel Kant. A lot mm -hmm. of religious traditions say, look, these are the rules, you must obey them. You should not be doing sort of online calculations about, you know, is it good in this case? Like, follow the mm -hmm. rules. The second branch is utilitarian ethics, greatest happiness for the greatest number, where you try to calculate, if I do this versus that, what are the kind of downstream implications in terms of how does it affect people in general and animals? And you try to calculate those expected utilities across the whole world. Now, I'm very sympathetic to that as a normative ethical perspective, and that you know, underlies my interest in effective altruism as a movement, et cetera, and anim animal ethics. Oops, getting all animated here. And the third branch is virtue ethics, going back to Aristotle, that says it's really individual humans who are the repository of virtues or vices, and that your job as a person is not just to try to make the best individual moral choices day by day that you can, but to cultivate virtue, you know, across all the domains of your life so that you become a better person and you encourage other people to do the same. Mm. That last thing, virtue ethics, I think is descriptively how we actually interact with other people and judge them. I think that's just like you meet somebody and you're trying to figure out, are they a good person? And you start gathering information about their values and their behaviors and their habits and, you know, their perspectives and their priorities. And each little bit of information you get helps give you a more accurate mental model about how are they going to behave, not just with me, 
but with my kids and my friends and my co colleagues and, you know, everybody. And I think this is quite a natural way that everybody who lives in the real world, you know, has, has to deal mm -hmm. with people. If you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to figure out who to hire and fire as part of your team, it all boils down to like the competence and the ethics of mm -hmm. the people, mm -hmm. you know, around you. Um, when you're evaluating a politician in a democratic society, you're kind of evaluating the complete moral package, including not just their stated public policies, but also like their private life and their family life and their business mm -hmm. dealings and all that. And it's all considered relevant for better mm -hmm. or worse. Um, you know, if you're a professor trying to select which, which of these 20 grad students do I want to admit to my program to work with me for the next four or five years right. in my lab group, you're trying to, you know, assess how smart are they, what are their personality traits, how hardworking are they, but also mm -hmm. are they going to fake data? You mm -hmm. know, are they going to betray colleagues? Are they, are, do they have scientific ethics mm -hmm. and interpersonal ethics? So I think this is quite a natural way that we, we think about human morality. Mm. Yeah, so it's all sort of like Austrian e economics would say that the individual is the you know elementary particle of the economy in a way. And you're 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 applying that to this moral framing as well, versus instead of just the individual acts, it's like we ultimately have to evaluate the individual, which is a composite of all these acts across time. That's interesting. Um, so you get into this. This is maybe kind of a long excerpt. I'll read two different parts here because um, you're saying that there are basically two key differences. And I guess this is between the, the act-based versus individual-based uh, moral action. So the first excerpt says, a moral act may be one that obeys some rationally defensible universalizable diatonic or consequentialist principle. However, a moral person from the point of view of a standard prehistoric hunter gatherer is someone who embodies pro social virtues that make them a good mate, friend, relative, or trading partner in evolutionary terms. A moral person is simply one who pursues their ultimate genetic self-interest through psychological adaptations that embody a genuine proximate concern for others. So there's, it gets very close competence and virtue almost start to overlap in this, in this framework. Is that right? Yeah, they do. And this is a very uncomfortable concept to a lot of people living under modernity where we've tried to pry apart kind of competence versus virtue or mm. like intelligence versus ethics or, uh, you know, we've tried very hard to sort of say, like, even if you suck at everything, you can be a highly ethical person. Mm -hmm. And in a, in a way, I think that's kind of lying to ourselves about how we actually interact with other people. Mm. Because I think in our day-to-day -day dealings, like if I'm collaborating with someone on a, on a scientific paper, the line between them being like incompetent at managing their time mm -hmm. versus being like unethically careless 
about how they analyze their data or write it up. That's a very fuzzy line. Mm -hmm. If you're in a marriage, like the line between someone just being like incompetent at watching over your kids and keeping them safe Mm. versus them being like evil and neglectful, very fuzzy line. Mm. The line between, you know, an employee who makes so many mistakes that they wreck your business Mm. versus someone who like steals money and wrecks your business. It doesn't much matter to you as a boss. The, the, the outcome might be kind of the same. Yeah. So I think if you go back to the ancient Greeks or even like the Nietzschean concept of kind of like master morality versus slave morality or Mm. the pagan virtues that Aristotle talked about, Mm. um, in that perspective, competence is pretty highly correlated with morality because people who are competent and moral can bring sustained real benefits to you if you interact with them. Right. Um, you remember the scene from 300 where King Leonidas is talking to the hunchback guy, right? Yeah. And the hunchback guy really, really wants to help with the fighting. Yeah, and yeah. Leonidas points out, like, you can't raise your shield. You can't protect the guy next to you. Yes. I'm sorry you're not capable of doing that. And that, I mean, it's cosmically unfair. Yes. But for the, the good of, you know, the army, like there's not really any difference between not being willing to protect the guy next to you and not being able to do it. Right, right, it? right, right, right. Yeah, and so, yeah. He, he made it to further make it ambivalent was he had a great thrust, right? He had a great stabbing maneuver, but he couldn't lift his shield to protect the man next to him. Therefore, he couldn't fit into the army. I think the example you gave in your book was if you go on a date with someone that has Tourette's and they're shouting some obscenity that even though you understand that they may have a psychological disorder, this is not something that they can help. It's very unlikely there's going to be a second date, right? They're just, there's an incompetence there that doesn't so much matter that the intention didn't map to it. It was just the, uh, I guess the actual physical embodiment of it. Yeah. So I want to read this second excerpt, which I thought was interesting too. Um, You said, second, the moral person level emphasizes that perceived moral virtue is an emergent property of interaction between the moral judgment maker and the morally judged. Just as beauty arises from the sexual ornaments of the displayer interacting with the perceptual adaptations of the beholder. Beauty is neither subjective nor objective, but one what one could call objectively relational. It is a real emergent property of a costly signaling system, including both ornaments and preferences. Likewise, for moral virtues in this mate choice model, the morality emerges from the interaction of traits and preferences. I mean, amazingly put, I'd never considered morality as an emergent property. Um, And this gets to, again, back to Rothbard, I think he talks about reason in the same way, right? Like human reason is an objective feature of of humans or faculty of humans. Um, Although it 
deals with uh, value judgments or its subjective judgments. Um, I mean, I, I, again, I'm getting through his book. I don't have the exact answer. What I think he's arguing is that because we have an objective reasonableness, we can get to an objective ethic or natural law that would be most conducive to human flourishing. Um, is that something similar here where you're saying that because a lot of, especially postmodernism, we'll just say morals are purely rel- relativistic, right? You're just kind of picking your own code arbitrarily and sticking to it. But I think you're somewhat making the point here that that's not quite the case. It's not purely subjective or purely objective. It's something in between. Yeah, I think, you know, the whole dichotomy between subjective and objective is very often misleading because we're like almost all human life operates somewhere in, in the middle ground. Right. But it's not a vague, waffly middle ground. It's actually kind of a surprisingly precise middle ground. So if you say, for example, um, let's go back to the Airbnb ratings. Are they objective? Well, if the compilation of an average Airbnb rating by a guest is mathematically truly reflective of real guests' rating mm-hmm how well they like this particular place to live for a while. That's also kind of objectively relational, right? They're reporting like, for me, given my needs, like I need space and I need Wi-Fi and I need a kitchen that works and I need a quiet neighborhood. For me, this is a good fit and I rate this Airbnb on that basis, right? And then you compile those judgments and, you know, as long as, your needs as potential renter are more or less aligned with like the typical needs of other renters historically, then you can take that rating as like a reliable, objectively relational measure of how happy you're likely to be in that place. Right. Yeah. So is it subjective? Is it objective? Well, (sighs) it's useful information. Right. You know, and that's good enough. And I think an awful lot of social judgment and moral judgment has that kind of character. Yeah. Again, we get back to this market dynamic where, I mean, so a market is supply, demand. Supply, pretty objective feature of reality, right? There's only a certain amount of capital or water, whatever the thing is, is being bought and sold. Demand, subjective. How much do people want of it? You overlay these two quantities, you get price, right? It's like an emergent property of, uh, or what you may call objectively relational, right? The price is objectively relational for market actors. Um, And it seems like there's something deeper here. I've I've really been getting so interested in the concept of exchange because it seems like everything is exchange. (laughs) Like the whole universe is this market of interchange. And so exchange, at least in the market sense, it's where like the narrative or the the realm of relevance maybe in reality touches physical material reality, right? And we're, we're we are, cre- I don't I don't have the words for it. It's where this, the world, the ideological plane and the physical plane touch, it seems like something like that. And so morality, I guess you'd be arguing here is emerging from the Ornament, the interaction of ornaments 
which is a supply feature, I guess, right? There's only a certain number of animals with certain ornamentation, whether it's horns or bright feathers, whatever it may be, and the preferences of their prospective sexual partners, which is demand. So is that what there's another marketplace dynamic occurring here? Oh, yeah, totally. So this is where you get virtue signaling dynamics at the cultural level, right, where for example, you get historical trends in what's considered kind of a minimum acceptable level of morality mm. in a partner, right? And often, historically, what you see is that like middle-class women are often the ones to kind of raise the ethical standard of a whole civilization. Mm. So for example, in Victorian England, there was the anti-vivisection movement and mm. women got very distressed that certain scientists were like, cutting open living dogs and cats and trying to figure out how they work. And they're like, this is bad. This hurts these animals. We object to it. And they organized anti-vivisection movements. And they managed mm -hmm. to convince enough men, like, you will not be acceptable as a potential mate mm -hmm. if you don't support me in this ethical quest. And then the same thing happened largely with anti-slavery movement, mm -hmm. right? Or anti-drinking movements. Um, you kind of get the the moral bar being raised higher and higher, mm -hmm. often kind of through the mating market and the marriage market. And nowadays with social media, of course, you get ethical standards, you know, arising very, very quickly. And you get this kind of ethical churn where like views that were considered okay three years ago are suddenly like taboo and considered completely outdated and now you have to start adopting this new ethical standard or this new ethical signal mm -hmm. this new kind of virtue signaling in order to be acceptable on twitter or facebook or, mm -hmm. or whatever and i think it's very hard to make sense of those kinds of social media dynamics unless you have a really clear sense of how uh, virtue signaling works at a kind of psychological level yeah it's so interesting. So, okay. So, morality, the rules of the game for the social network, whatever it may be, um, we're constantly trying to play within them and we want those around us to play within them so we can lower our own cognitive burden to deal with uncertainty, whatever the aim we're trying to achieve. And then in that, so in that game, I guess, if that's the right term, that sexual selection is almost like a tool we use to guide our own evolution, right? Like if the group's going astray, then enough people in that group, well, you're saying women, which I guess Peterson makes this point a lot too, that uh, female apes aren't, they don't discriminate in their mating preferences. They kind of will just in terms of the hierarchy, they'll just sleep with any male and at any position in the hierarchy, whereas human females are very selective. They want to always date across and up, um, at least in the socioeconomic hierarchy, I think was what he was talking about, whereas men will date across and down. Um, so then sexual selection becomes a tool by which we guide our own evolution, which is really interesting, um, kind of like innovation in a way where we're using a tool to guide ourselves, you know, 
to guide ourselves a different direction, right? We can, instead of walking everywhere, we can start driving. And then maybe we evolve different features as a result of that or create cities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this feels like something that we're getting to something, touching on something that really distinguishes human from animal, like this, this agency of sexual partner of tool use. Is that what, what this is? It's connected to our, our reason, I, I suppose. I think it is un, it's unusually human to put so much of our sexual selection and, and mate choice focus on these kind of ethical attributes. All right. So if you're a peacock, you know, and you're being chosen by a peahen, it's basically just the morphology of your tail. How big is it? How colorful? Mm-hmm. How symmetrical? How can you shake it? You know, and the peahen's like, oh, cool tail, bad, like not very good tail. They're not making an probably not making a like ethical judgment mm-hmm. about that's a virtuous tale mm-hmm. and that's an evil tale because it's right. small and ugly. But I think once you get a kind of hyper social primate like us, that's so well adapted to living in a family and tribal group setting and where you've got language and memory mm-hmm. and planning and you can integrate information about someone across long spans of time and many interactions, then you suddenly have this leverage for shaping the evolution of all kinds of behaviors, um, cooperative behaviors and mating and parenting behaviors where you never Mm. really had that much leverage before. Right. Like even if chimps wanted to select for, you know, good virtue signaling chimps, there's only a limited number of ways they could do that. Yeah. You know, the, the, like the female chimps could potentially select for male chimps that are better at leading effective raids against other chimp tribes. They could select for like alpha males that are better at resolving conflict within the chimp group. Right. They could select for males that are better at reducing like accidental infanticides and baby deaths you know and stuff like that but they wouldn't have the range of of social interactions that we have by virtue of exchange and language and all that that they could pay attention to and i think um selecting for these moral virtues has been an incredibly creative evolutionary process because it means like you can take let's say women choosing men for their trustworthiness Mm -hmm. and for like the integrity of, of following through on their promises. And if you start favoring that in your male mates, then kind of as a byproduct, you're selecting males who also have a sense of honor and integrity when they're dealing with their friends and allies and customers Mm, and the broader market, you know, So you get all these kind of generalized um, social benefits out of this kind of sexual selection for moral virtues, I think. And that, I think that was actually crucial in you know, the rise of human civilizations and, and market economies and technology. Yeah. That we kind of had probably thousands of generations of selection Mm -hmm. males choosing females females choosing males Mm -hmm. for these kinds of like mating virtues 
that then happen to be really also useful when you're interacting with strangers in markets that involve, you know, billions of people. Fascinating. Um, sort of bootstrapping reciprocal altruism all the way up into the market economy, right? Yeah. Um, it's an incredible way to look at it. I, and so I like the point you made there too. It's because we have the capacity to cooperate at scale, you know, largely via the use of symbols, you know, language and numeracy, all these psychotechnologies, again, that other animals don't have the ability to use, that we have more exchange. What, um, what we say here, this is, this gets into like Yuval Harari's book, Sapiens, whereas like the reason humans run the world is because we can mobilize 10,000 people under a flag, right? We can mobilize people under a symbol. Whereas a, a primate troop cannot do that. They can't break the Dunbar number of 150 or whatever it may be. And so morality is almost a reflection of our exchange complexity. So the fact that we can exchange across larger scales of space and time, the morality has to match that in a way, right? It becomes more sophisticated, nuanced, and all of these things. So interesting. So morality is an emergent market phenomenon, but it's, there's a truth to it. Just like there's a truth to price, right? There's, it's not just some hand wavy subjective thing. It's like, no, there's a very, there's a functional and non-functional morality or a true and untrue in, in a given market, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, very, a lot to think about there. I want to read one more excerpt here that I thought was super cool because I had never heard of the pagan virtues actually. So you say the most romantic personal traits are often those that have been considered praiseworthy moral virtues by the world's most influential philosophical and religious traditions from ancient Greece, Israel, Arabia, India, China, and Japan. These lovable virtues include not only the traditional pro-social virtues of European Christendom, such as faith, hope, charity, love, kindness, fairness, equality, humility, and conscience, but also Nietzsche's pagan virtues, such as leadership, bravery, strength, skill, health, fertility, beauty, tolerance, joy, humor, and grace. Can you speak to that dichotomy? This is the first I'd ever heard of it, but um, it's very interesting. Yeah, so after you guys listen to this, you should all go read, you know, Nietzsche's uh, The Genealogy of Morals, mm. which is an amazing, groundbreaking book from, you know, the 1800s, where Nietzsche is sort of critiquing the whole history of Western moral philosophy ever since um, Christ and pointing out that a lot of what we consider kind of abstractly ethical is actually very much grounded in a particular kind of Judeo-Christian ethic mm. as it developed historically in, mm -hmm. in Europe, right? And he's pointing out there's a lot of things that people used to consider virtuous in pre-Christian pagan traditions um, and in other cultures and even in Northern Europe as it was getting like gradually Christianized. Like the Vikings spent hundreds of years kind of being in the borderline between like well, we worship Thor, but we also worship mm. Jesus. And, you know, 
and they kind of combine those pagan virtues and the Christian virtues. So I'm just pointing out that um, I think actually a distinctive problem with current moral psychology is it puts way too much emphasis on those Christian virtues mm-hmm. that are frankly kind of feminine in a way, like the more stereotypes typically associated with women. Mm-hmm. And they kind of neglect the, the pagan virtues that stereotypically and historically were a little bit more masculine virtues, you know, the kind of virtues you see in the, the movie 300 or Fight mm-hmm. Club or whatever, mm-hmm. and that are very sexually attractive to many women, but that many modern men fail to cultivate. Mm. So the wrong way to read my my little chapter or or journal paper here would be to go, oh, I'm a young man. I want to be sexually attractive. I'm going to be ethical in the style of just Jesus or just Buddha or just the kind of pacifist, Mm -hmm. egalitarian, nice, nice, Mr. Nice Guy morality, Mm -hmm. right? I think that would be kind of a a blunder because it means you're handicapping yourself from showing all those traditional pagan virtues that are actually some of the hottest kind of sexually attractive virtues, particularly early in courtship, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those are the kind of virtues that young males strive to show off in many cultures kind of before they settle down and get married. Mm. And then once you have babies, you'll, you'll naturally moderate those and kind of become (laughs) nicer and, and more chill and you, you won't be worried so much about like the honor of battle and strength and all that. <laughs> but I do think there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of sexual politics element to this. Um, and I was so, slightly anticipating my, my mate book. This is like a little bit of gentle advice to my male readers that Dudes, don't, don't, don't neglect the pagan virtues as you're, <laughs> as you're cultivating your ethical soul. Uh, would you say, where's the line between these two? Because it seems like faith, hope, charity, love, kindness, fairness, equality, humility, conscience, those seem to be pretty selfless. Whereas these other ones, may, I mean, I guess you could say they're the pagan are maybe a little more selfish, leadership, bravery, strength, skill, health, fertility, beauty, tolerance, joy, humor, grace. I don't, maybe that's not the right uh, dist- way to, to distinguish between the two. Are these just ones that are mentioned in the Bible versus ones that Nietzsche laid out? Or is there some categorical difference between the two? I'm, I'm basically just borrowing from Nietzsche at, at that point, but mm-hmm. And so the, the line is a little bit arbitrary, but I think in a way, a lot of the pagan virtues honestly have to do with cultivating your family or group power so that it can defend itself against potentially hostile other groups. Mm-hmm. You know, so the virtues of being able to be like a decisive military leader, like Patton, are not particularly kind and cuddly. Mm-hmm. But there's, you know, the really good reasons for being like you need you need the guys who can do that, or else your group right. ends up being defenseless and goes right. extinct. So, 
when you're dealing with existential threats to your, your family or your tribe, that's often when these pagan virtues become absolutely crucial. Right. And during peacetime, you kind of forget that they're, they actually have any utility. And there's, there's a kind of drift into like, oh, the Christian virtues are all we need. Mm. And then you get an actual threat. And then you go, oh, I guess we should have um, kept the balance a little more, more strongly. And, you know, to some extent, this, this maps onto a kind of right versus left political spectrum. To some extent, it maps a little bit onto masculine versus feminine virtues. Um, but I think at a more abstract level, um, it just points out that, like, there's many different ways you can provide value to your group. Yeah. And not all of them involve being a, a psychotherapist who's a good listener. Right. You know? Yeah, so, so you're, it's situational, right? In times of war, you need more of the pagan virtues, perhaps. And in times of peace, the Christian virtues are a little more fitting. Is This is calling to mind, I don't know if it's related, but uh, Carl Jung and, you know, the shadow, the shadow work is there's almost, um, I, I guess the highest form of develop, development then would be integrating these two together so that you have all of these within one individual. Yeah. And I think like every, every ethically mature civilization has kind of realized this and it's always mm. provided little nudges to individuals as they're growing up. Mm-hmm. Then like you need to integrate a little bit more of this. You need to work a little bit more on this other thing. And then you become a, a truly balanced, you know, integrated, flexible, adaptive person. Um, and it's also recognized that, uh, you know, functional civilizations have recognized you need also a diversity of different kind of ethical personality types, mm. just different kinds of people. Yeah. And you shouldn't expect everyone to kind of converge onto like one ethical right. type that, right, that, right. that like solves all your your problems. You you need you basically need all these different union archetypes: mm. you know, the warrior and the the trickster and the you know wise old man and and et cetera. Um, and so each individual can try to integrate all these archetypes internally, but also like you're allowed to specialize. Yeah. Is then the, say the, the king or the ruler of the polity, they're supposed to embody this integration as much as possible. I mean, it, I mean, to the extent that, Let's say you have a monarch who's expected to rule for multiple decades where you have like wartime and peacetime and you mm-hmm. have, you know, economic boom times and then you have hard times. And mm-hmm. like if you mm-hmm. want the same person to be able to be a, a functional ruler yes. throughout all of those contexts, then hopefully they're going to integrate all these parts into themselves. Um, or you could run it like a, like a Roman Republic where like, the guy that you need in peacetime isn't necessarily the guy you need when you're at war with Carthage. Mm. Then you appoint the despot. Mm. Like, and then hopefully they give up their power once the war is over. <laughs> yeah. Uh, pre- pretty low odds on that one, right? <laughs> it works sometimes. Yeah. You know? um, 
and you know, I guess arguably one advantage of crypto is like you you don't necessarily need like a one leader who either integrates all of these attributes, yeah, and sort of runs the network like a CEO. Um, and you might actually have a, a a benefit from having a kind of variety of different personality and, and moral types involved in yes. in any given project. You know? a, a, a less hierarchical marketplace, perhaps. Uh, which I think that is one of the very interesting interesting aspects of Bitcoin is that since you have the property rights imbued in the asset, they don't really need to be protected by some enforcer outside that may or may not give up his powers or abuse his powers, that it at least portends the possibility of a leaderless civilization in a way. Not leader less like none, but less people sitting on tops of hierarchies, so flatter hierarchies um, all around. That is probably a good place to stop. I think I'm really captivated by the book, frankly. Um, Thanks. uh, This idea, because it's a complicated argument, but it's very important in the world today that it feels like the world is kind of awash in moral relativism. And that's what's just disintegrating culture and society. Um, You know, again, I'm still trying to more precisely identify what I intuit to be a link to money. And not just me, many authors have written about this. You know, you you unmoor money, it tends to unmoor social morality and has all these second and third order consequences. But I feel like this lens of evolutionary biology is uh, helping bridge that, that gap in my own understanding. So thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> Hope we can talk again soon. And uh, thank you guys for listening to a, a long and winding conversation. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> that, that's what they're here for. Hopefully. <laughs>